Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Hello, hi, welcome to this new episode of the Mango TV podcast. Today we have my dear friend and mentor in some way, Bruce Perry. Um, you heard about him from our documentary, Tawai, the Voice of the Forest. I quickly, as usual, read a brief biography. Bruce is best known for his award-winning documentaries, which followed him living with and learning from remote indigenous peoples around the world. Other series followed him visiting people struggling with the effects of globalization and climate change and the part we all play in these events. These experiences led him to leave the BBC and direct a feature documentary about humankind loss of connection to nature and the effect this is having globally. He has been deeply affected by his travels and is now trying to put into practice some of the lessons he learned over the years, especially influenced by the few remaining egalitarian tribes. He has been lucky to meet. He currently lives in Wales. Hello, Bruce. Welcome. Ah, uh, Giancarlo. So nice to see you again. It's been too long, my friend. So, as you guys know, Mango TV is uh, interested in... Um, his initial interest was in psychedelic medicine and science, and then from that, uh, we are exploring the theme of regeneration, and Bruce is an expert on that. Um he will talk about not only his experience with the with the with the BBC, but also um, his vision on 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 what kind of community we should build to live harmoniously together. And this is a huge topic today, obviously. So, Bruce, why don't we start with um, with the pivotal point where you decided to leave the BBC and go in a different direction. Can you elaborate on that and you know, tell us about your feelings, if you can, about uh, in, in that period? <laughs> oh, straight to the heart of it, Giancarlo. Yes. Thanks, mate. Yeah, why not? Why not? Wow. Well, yeah, why did I leave the BBC? Uh, uh, I, sometimes, I sometimes ask myself that question. It's like, you know, it was a gig. It was a gravy train. I had a meal ticket for life. I was at the top of my game. I'd just born, been winning BAFTAs, and um, the shows were doing very well. But I guess the, the real heart of it was that uh, what I had seen on my journeys made me wake up and realize that I couldn't just carry on making films, even though I was really proud of those films, uh, even though they, um, you know, I slept well at night and I, they were great information for everyone um, and it was all compelling stuff, I realized that you know, I'd just been sent around the world to look at globalization and climate change and I felt this, like, tidal wave coming towards us. And, and that ultimately was so overpowering to me that I couldn't just then go and do the next thing about like, you know, water in China and whatever the next project they wanted me to talk about was. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa like, you know, I can't, you know, yes, that's important too, but look at this thing that's coming. Look at this thing that you've just sent me around the world to look at. And it was so compelling to me. And, and also what was really disheartening was that I was coming back, having, you know, my last trip 
was uh, the sort of Arctic series, which was the one where I was looking specifically at climate change, and then coming back to a nation that was still debating whether it was real or not, and all of that stuff. And so I'm like, look, this is this has to be my my journey now. This this has to be it. Um, and also, that what was really beautiful for me in my sort of career with the BBC was that not only did I see the problems with globalization, going down the Amazon, looking at oil and slavery and logging and soya and cattle and all of those things. That's what I looked at. So it's like our impact on the planet through the way of life that we live. And then going around the Arctic, looking at climate change, like this is real and it affects us all and it's coming. But then I also had this amazing a gift, which was that I'd also spent five or six years going to visit tribal people. And it's like, wow, so not only have I seen the problems, but I've also seen potential solutions. And so that whole package for me was like, right, well, I can't just go off and carry on making TV shows about other things. I, I now have this amazing package that I could sort of like Try and in, try and share some of the deeper wisdom that I'd learned from tribal people because it, in some ways, answered some of these problems that are coming our way. And the BBC weren't interested in me necessarily doing that, so I'm like, okay, well, I got to leave you guys. I'm going to go and do it myself. But so when you mention that you know there was an awakening, you know, we live in Ibiza where this is a very common theme, and uh, you know, are you awakening? Are you awake? Are you asleep? Can you elaborate a little bit? How how does an awakening feels like <laughs> well i uh, like i'm sure many many of your listeners i've had a number you know correct it's it's a process it's not an event yeah but there have been definitely real events along the way okay yeah. we, we want to know about those okay well i you know i started out uh, as a marine you know i started out as like as a, as a boarding school in england with a very christian family with a military father i was as institutionalized as you get you know if i my mum said to me if you ever take a drug i'll call you know i'll disown you and so i was like i was that was me. If I'd seen someone smoking pot, I would have called the police. You know, that's the kind of guy I was. And I joined the Marines. I was so into that world. It was super anti-drug, super institutional. We were all what they call corpus, just in love with the work, love, love with the Marines. And that was me. That was my upbringing. Um, and then I guess probably the first big smack around the face was falling madly in love with, with a woman who took me who I, I basically was so in love with her that I was willing to explore an experience with her of the, these, this whole realm that I just call drugs, which is everything, um, not distinguishing between any one of them. If it's illegal, it's bad, <laughs> you know, that sort of mindset. And she said, I think you'd really like mushrooms. Um, and so I was in Gili Truangan out in, in Indonesia and, and we had an experience together. How old were you then? I was probably 27, 28. Okay, so being still in the army. So no, I left the Marines at like 23. Uh -huh. So I'd, le I'd left the Marines and then I used to lead these expeditions in Asia. So that's what I was doing I after that. So I used to lead these science and conservation trips out in Asia. So I'd been out of the Marines, but I hadn't lost the mindset because I'd always been the leader of these expeditions. So I was still the boss. It was my way. Or, you know, so I'd meeting other people, but I, I wasn't influenced by them because I was in charge. And so maintain that egoic structure of, of knowing, thinking I knew what was what. And it was only when I fell in love and, and was invited to, to explore this thing. And, and actually, it ended up being an atrocious experience. It's like I had a massive overdose. 
didn't nothing I wasn't feeling the effects I do, now do you remember how many grams I don't but it was like you know, if you go to somewhere like the Gillies I know that when you ask for a, a cup of mushroom tea there's probably quite a few in there there's like sludgy teas uh-huh. and I had about three of them because you didn't feel it I didn't feel it at first, but I didn't realize at the time. I'm just a, I'm just a, a marine. <laughs> yeah, it just came in late. And so when, when everyone was pointing and giggling and laughing, I was with a group. Uh, I was like, look, I can't feel this. It's, I'm not going to pretend. It's not happening. She goes, oh, you must just need more. So I had like another one and then another one. Everyone else has just had like a quarter of a cup. And I went insane. And like, I had a really, it was quite a dark experience actually because like, my friend didn't know how to hold you know, she'd learned when she was really young and they it was a formative time for them when they were really young but she'd never dealt with someone who had been a marine who'd led expeditions who'd always been in charge of super confident super yeah. sure who had this big egoic Mass, armor massive egoic armor and then the whole and she didn't tell me the one thing that whenever I take people on the first time now I'd make sure that don't worry you'll come back you know it's just an experience so I thought that I was going to be in this for this is my new reality I went into like apoplexy and was literally seeing seas of cockroaches rushing towards her and grabbing her hands saying come with me and wanting to protect her and then her going what and I'm like no no don't worry and then her thinking of some axe murderer and we like spiraled down uh, I remember walking along it was such a strong trip it was really really But strong it was 100% horror trip no it was it, it was let There were moments that were interesting, but it was mostly really difficult. But can you elaborate, what, is, what was the interesting part? So, okay, an interesting example. I, I remember thinking, I have to protect her. So I see this, for example, the sea of cockroaches like out of a movie, millions, like the whole carpet coming towards her, I grab her. And then we head off down this, uh, down the beach, but it's got trees overhead, so there's, there's no moonshine and it's dark and it's just the two of us. And I'm seeing pixies and elves literally everywhere, like peeking over the, the, the logs at us. Um, and then we walk along and then I stop and then suddenly I'm in a hole and my foot is literally 10 foot long And she's right up there uh, holding my hand, but my hand, and I'm like, what am I doing? I mean, I don't think I've ever had an, a mushroom trip like it since. I mean, it's so powerful. So I'm literally in a hole ten, with, a, with a 10 foot long arm, and, hold, and she's right up there. And I'm like, how on earth did I get in here? And then I kind of closed my eyes and said, just step forward. I don't know what else to do. And then I was out of it. But things like that, which were, um, you know, it's a super powerful trip. It was a super powerful trip. And I was like trying to protect her, like, let me take you to the light. If, let's get over there to where the light is, where the moonshine is, and we'll be fine. But what it did was it, it knocked me out of Christianity. I was like, okay, whatever that was, that's not what. But so there was a little bit of a mystical experience. You yeah, felt definitely. the connection I, with... I felt, yeah, I felt... I mean, it's so, so long ago now, but uh, I definitely remember coming out of that going, okay, whatever I thought the world was all about and whatever my beliefs had been, because I was, grew up in a very Christian family, I was kind of maintained that as a, I mean, it, it, slightly rational, obviously questioning. I didn't believe the whole thing, but ultimately believed in a guy in the sky kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, that's not, that's not what's going on here. This is something very mm-hmm. different. So it set me on my own spiritual journey, journey opened the door to questioning and And so that was the biggest gift that came from it. Nice. But, uh, and also just, I then spent the next summer um, going to festivals and then hanging out with 
people that previously I'd have had a really negative sort of like prejudgment about a prejudice of like hippies and and whoever and because I'd been a marine and I'd sort of soaked up that whole mental space uh, homophobic and all that sort of stuff and then with her I went to festivals and just basically was had my mind blown about how amazing all these people were and basically connecting with all sectors of society that I hadn't done before and that all came from me just going I don't know what's going on here. Mm. So would you say that you know with the shattering of your egoic armor you basically lost your judgment and you felt more open in different reality different way to lead your life. It was the beginning of that. Yeah. It was the beginning of yeah. that. And what what it what it did was because I was so sure of myself. You know, I'd been trained in the the marine officer training just tells you you're the best of the best and yeah. you can do anything and yeah. and they, no vulnerability. Yeah. And and you have to believe that. It's yeah. like I'm going to now be in charge of a whole bunch of people who are all older than me. I need to be able to take them over the top to go to war whatever. So it's like they tell you you're the best and you believe it and then you come out and you've got no idea about this thing like creativity or softness or vulnerability Empathy. none of those things none of those things you just you're just not carrying that but you don't feel you need it you're like i'm strong i'm amazing off we go yeah. and so that just killed that and i was and then me going and spending a whole summer with all my friends who just gone to the city of london you know all my other marine officers who'd left that's where that was the direct line yeah in big jobs so not yeah into big money like another bastion of male oriented sort of like egoic power structure yeah. and that would be the normal direction from all of those people that would be the kind of direction they went or into sort of pseudo military type things protection and security those were the jobs that most people went to and i basically spent a whole year going to festivals hanging out with people with the good friend you were in love with the girlfriend i was in love with and just having my mind blown and realizing again and again oh my god i thought i knew it all and i don't know anything and that was that ultimately was the greatest gift i had for when i ended up doing the tribe series for the bbc because it was like I've already had my confidence in who I am and what I believe totally turned on its head once. There's no way I'm going to go into these tribes and think I know better. I better just go and listen because and that was the secret for why those shows ended We're up. So successful. Yeah. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So let's con- let's stay on the awakening process. So that was the big um if you want um first bang first bang at your egoic armor then did the festival then you started the bbc and then what was the next you know they say spiritual growth is not a linear line right it's 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 flat for a while and then there's a jump yeah so what was your next jump well let me think so i think the festivals were were a jump but i think probably let's just get to it you know doing a bogo with with with, uh, with the babongo people which was the first of the tribe programs that we made yeah and uh, we didn't even know what the shows were going to be we were making yeah. it up as we went along and I, at the end of having lived with these people for a month they said well do you want to do this thing you know yeah. we, you know we do it are you are you interested we we would be happy to initiate did you know anything about iboga before? i'd read i'd read about it on the flight on the way out um because which is just a quirk of coincidence because we were supposed to be going to visit the anamami but but that had been cancelled at the last minute for a bunch of reasons and so we ended up changing to plan b and so i'm only reading about the babongo on the way out and i remember reading you know that occasionally there's some problems with people who have heart problems um 
Uh, but you can clearly figure out if you've got a problem or not by looking at your key Q graph on your ECG or whatever. And, and I'm like, if, I, if I'd only read this yesterday, I could have had an ECG. But I'm on the flight now, and there's no way. But you never had it. No, 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 I didn't. But it was just that. But I ha had no idea yeah. about these things. Yeah. And so that so. When you asked me, uh, did I know much about it? It was very fresh to me. I was reading about it as we went. And then, of course, I was with the people, um, and they invited me to do it. And I've, So we were in Gabon. I was in Gabon, um, in, so in the forest with a group of people called the Babongo, who were pygmy peoples. Mm -hmm. um, and they'd never done it with an outsider before. Wow. And... Uh, And actually, it's interesting. There, I, the, there was a guy there who'd been, who's a French guy who'd been living in the area for 20 years or so, and he ended up kind of being my translator and conduit because he was taking people for boga ceremonies who used to come out from Europe. Um, and he said he'd never seen anything like it, you know, because he, we did a really traditional ceremony, and there's a lot of boga going on in Libreville in the towns, but that's like. Um, a very modern takes on it with everyone's just, you know, a little bit like Santa Dime or whatever. It's like it's come out of the forest and it's been re-implanted with other people's mm -hmm. traditions and other ways of doing things. So to go and do it very authentically in the forest was was quite a rare thing, even for people like him who'd been there for years and years. And and and, and you were there with the camera. So we were there with the camera. Yeah, and people can watch this if they YouTube Bruce Perry, Iboga, they will see the, the footage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see it all, but you see there's some clips. Yeah. Um, obviously, the film has a lot more, but uh, it, it was unbelievable the the privilege of having done it that way. Because I had the whole village who I already knew because I'd lived with them for a month, and then they spend like two or three days preparing. I'm the only person doing it. You go in to your hut where you you you're told who your Bwiti father is going to be, and then. They feed you the aboga for uh, for about 12 hours, which is which is actually that interestingly is the initiation. That's the hardest bit. Lots of people nowadays just take capsules or, yeah. or, or shred it, but they're just stripping it off the big tuber, long strips, and they hand it to you, and you've got to chew it down. And no water, it can't cross any arms or legs. You're sitting there in the dark with a small fire, and you eat that for about 12 hours, and, and like it's incredibly difficult. The it's like swallowing, swallowing wood. Yeah, it's like wood and battery acid. It's like really acrid, so you can't swallow, and there's no fluid in your mouth, so it's really, it's like trying to swallow chunks of wood that you're breaking Whoa. down. So really, really, really hard. Um, and you feel like your whole body's sort of like on fire. And so that was that, um, which was the hard bit. That's their initiation. And then you went into about, or I went into about uh, another 12 hours, which is the main vision stage. So you're having all of these empathic out-of-body experiences of, of reliving past traumas and meeting deities and a whole bunch of stuff, which is phenomenal. What was interesting, you'll love this, Jankar, what was really interesting is, um, so every time I'd come out of one of these dreams, they would say, okay, what did you see? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I just came out of my body and I went to this guy, I relived this moment with a girlfriend who was, who, who, who was really ill at the time and I remember going into her body and looking at me through her eyes Whoa. and her saying to me, I'm in her, well, she says to me, I'm looking at Bruce from her and she goes, I love you. And then me going, yeah, I do too, but I'm kind of looking away and it looks like I don't mean it. And I feel her heart from within her, like breaking into. So these sorts of deeply empathic experiences that I'm vividly living through the aboga experience. Um, and then, so I'm explaining this to my Bwiti father. He goes, no, 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 no. 
what did you see? And I'm like, what do you mean? I just broke, I just poured my heart out. He's like, no, no. then I'd have another one. I've met this deity. But what do you think? What do you think he meant? So, well, I'll tell you. So, like, I, I get, get explaining all of this stuff to him. He's like, no. That's your interpretation. This is this is me telling him all of these dr- dreams of, of experiences that I have, like meeting deities, all this, the whole bunch. And he's like, no, no, no. And then every time I, I try and explain to him after coming out of a dream state what I've seen, he's like not interested. And I say, well, he goes, what did you see? Never anything more than that. What did you see? And then I'm like, well, I'm, I'm seeing these shapes and things too. He goes, ah, what did you see? And then I'm like, well, it was like this thing spinning. And, tw- and he goes, what did you see? And then and basically he was only interested in these shapes. And only when I described it in the fullest of its detail, and I've sworn I can ever sort of like explain them in detail to anyone else but I would share the dimensions and the colour and the flashing and the movement and whatever and he's like ah bukaye and then he'd name it and then on we went and then so I'm like and then later on much later like days later I said to him why weren't you interested in all those like emotional he goes oh yeah I hear that outsiders sometimes have some problems but we're not interested in that (laughs) but what is they were like geometrical figure basically like 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 cube and hexagon and triangle. I, I, I'm not able to answer that directly, um, but because you, you don't they, remember. No, because I, I a vowel. because it's a vowel. But um, yeah, certainly different types of shape, and they have names for all of them. And f- what I I guess what I've guessed or, or sort of believe is that they're they're interested in whether or not you meet the Bwiti and the Bwiti is the deity and these are these are the signposts along the way and it will be different people go down different paths because you'll see them in different spaces but they that's the knowledge that they hold is that and they need to then go and explain that afterwards because this is only like the first day of three days so after that after that 12 hours of seeing all the visions and having this time. Then I come out of this hut and I literally get picked up straight away, put on someone's shoulders and I don't touch the ground for two whole days where I'm like being carried around day and night, taken down to the river, washed, put through a vulva, reborn and then back on someone's shoulders and then like sitting on the crook of people's feet while they're rushing around, sprinkling me with water in the daylight and literally fires, fires being thrown around me and a hundred, hundred things going on for two days all the time while I'm like, the whole energy of the entire village just all focused on me for two days, dancing and singing. They're the most amazing and musicians. And what were you feeling at that moment? Well, I'm seeing, seeing lots of stuff, you know. I'm more like, figure, more geometrical stuff? No, more because your eyes are open, you're not in a dark room. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am seeing some things. And, and for example, they asked me at the end, when I had this moment with the elders, which is the uh, the sort of the sacred sort of actual initiation where they ask you about the shapes and the things, and they say, what did you see on the second day when you come out? And the first thing that you saw, you um, that they have a name for that, and that becomes your name. So on the second day, it's the first uh, image that you see, and mine became Makanga, and that's Blue Star. And so Blue Star is what I saw on the second day and that became a name. But like, so all of this going on, yeah, crazy. But so according to your um, main uh, shaman, uh, how did you call him? Your My Bwiti father. Your Bwiti father. When you describe the shape and figure, did he feel that you did 
encounter the spirit yeah, of yeah 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 yeah. So I was initiated. It, it was it wow. was sufficient. That, uh, but what they're really interested in. So sometimes people don't get. That's a very good question, and I couldn't answer that. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what they what they what they judge you on most is how well you eat the wood. Mm. So it's they're not interested in all your psychological stuff. It's like how well do you receive the wood and eat the wood and. They they were actually very impressed with how I did that, and the guy is like, he said, "You see, you see how well he ate the wood." And I didn't even know that's what they were testing, but I, I, because you had a high tolerance for pain, no, because I, you because were like Marines was, after well, all. Well, because I really wanted to do. I yeah. just really wanted to do it. I wanted to have the experience, and um, uh, but I, I I I have to say, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Wow. It was really, really, really difficult. It's like. Wow unbelievably hard to sit there and just constantly eat this thing without any water to wash it down just like chewing on bat, sort of battery acid mm. wood chunks yeah. but so in that moment what you know your Buiti father would say that when you encountered the, the spirit of the Buiti do you remember how, did you feel this non-dual experience of cosmic consciousness definitely there were there, there were a number of phases I mean it's a sort of 12 hour of Different visions, and you, it was it was weird. It was there was a structure to it, actually, in a way. The first phase, I felt like I was going down, like you know, like you would have if you're on, on a deep, um, or at least I've experienced on deep ketamine trips, where you you kind of spiral down like a. Um, in a K-hole, an, an, an endless K-hole yeah. sort of shoot, you know, yeah. um, where you're, you're it look feels like you're just diving into the into sort of some down some like time loop into something and so but a very psychedelic visual one but mm. it's like a, so I was going down that and what was what was interesting about that first phase um, was that this guy Oog the French guy who was there with me I, he was asked he was helping me prepare the day before and he said look what you should do is like sit for the day um, by the river and just write out all of your you're basically your wrongdoings all of your sort of like things that you're you feel ashamed of or whatever in your life because that, that will help you in this process tomorrow so i had sort of written out all the, my, my sort of like the lies and the cheating and whatever it was you know a confession sheet mm. that i wrote and interestingly when i went in this first phase of of the ceremony when i'm taking my um iboga all of those things that i'd written out they didn't come they didn't appear to me at all, but what? what but then there was this like almost like this joke, giant finger pointing that was like in this. So I'm like, traveling down this chute, and there was this like big finger pointing at me. He goes, but you forgot that, didn't you? You're like that as well, aren't you? You're like that. You didn't write that one down, did you? So it's like two or three things that I like completely forgotten about. They appeared. So it was like this whole first sort of like. Um, dive into the space was like this full catharsis. It's like, okay, here's your mental space of letting go and, and realizing who you really are. And then after that, then I went into the next phase, which was like reliving sort of like very powerful moments, like the moment with the girlfriend that I described where I came out and I embodied her, me breaking her heart from lack of care. And But I mean, you don't get, I mean, that's the most literal description of empathy you can ever have. It's like seeing feeling one up someone else's feelings i was literally in her body looking out from her eyes at me and i had a few moments like that where i felt my impact on the world um, and then after that there was another phase which was a little bit more astral where i was kind of 
in a cloud, more cloud-like space where I was meeting deities. And again, I'm not quite allowed to describe what that was, but that, that was a space. And then after that, there was the more, let's say, uh, universal consciousness awareness of letting go of self and dissolution into the whole. So it kind of flowed in that direction. And, and I've, I've read somewhere that that actually is similar to how it is for other people too. Wow. Yeah, it's a good one. Incredible. <laughs> that was my first ever Tribe episode. Incredible, you know? <laughs> incredible, incredible. So, so just let's stay just a little bit longer on this uh, awakening process. So it started with the mushroom in Asia, it continued with the Iboga in, in Gabon, and then what would be, would be, what do you think would be the next, you know, spiritual jump? Yeah. Well, I mean, I did a number of different medicines then with the tribal people around the world, but I think for, for the sake of time, because I could sit here with you for, for a long time talking about the jumps, but let, I think the next really big one was the Coggy, mm -hmm. which happened after the BBC when I went off with you to, to make Tawai. Um, and I had had an experience with the Coggy for some time. Um, let, let's briefly tell what the Kogi, <laughs> the, the Kogi are. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Crumbs, well, this is another wormhole in its own right. The Kogi super interesting. So I think we're going to have to have you back. <laughs> so let's do this first hour as episode one of Bruce Perry. Okay, okay. All right, so, so the Kogi are a wonderful indigenous society culture uh, who, a civilization really, living in a place called the, San, uh, the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in Colombia. They, they were... Um, the Tyrona people, and it's the first place that Columbus ever ever landed. He, Columbus did, himself didn't. The Spanish ever landed in South America was this place called Santa Marta in Colombia on the Caribbean coast. And uh, in that place was this Tyrona people. They coexisted with the Spanish in a really pretty difficult way for about 80 years. And then there was a big revolt and they ran off and sort of disappeared into this massif, this snow-capped mountain range well, it's not even a range it's like a it's like a massif one sort of big whole block that's uh, just inland from the caribbean coast um and they basically have coexisted there uh, no it's not coexisted they've existed there sort of like ran away from the spanish for the last 500 years um and split into a number of different um civilizations the wiwa the arawako the kogi and another um and they are super interesting. I mean, we could really talk about these people. Yeah, there is a BBC documentary on them, no? There is, um, yeah. How is it, it called? It's called The uh, Heart of the World, of the uh, Elder Brother's Warning. Yeah. And that was made in 1980. And then basically, I went back with the same guy, Alan Herrera, 20 years later to go and make the sequel of that. And, and that was where I went, first went out. He introduced me to them, and we were going to make this doc. Um, and the, the, the reason that I was interested in meeting them was because I was already now, by the time I'd left the BBC, well, so as I was leaving the BBC, um, super interested in consciousness and connection. And th this, these people have a very, very interesting religion, have a very, very interesting spiritual tradition and a really interesting politics. And, and I was thinking if I was going to explore this more, they had to be a group that I would like to, 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 um, to meet and, and listen to because yeah. they, they have very particular ways of, of uh, being in the world. And so I was, I was very keen to go out. One, one, one um, interesting practice is that they have this very curious um, training for the spiritual leader, which is they grow up in a cave, com complete darkness, 
almost for 16 years. 18. 18 well, they do it for nine years and then they're given a choice of rejoining the society or staying and most of them stay and some stay for 27 years. Whoa. But most leave at 19 having never seen a bird or a tree or a mountain or anything. Incredible. And they, But in that time, and there's not very many that have this, there's many, there's many mammos. The mammos, the name for the spiritual priest leaders. There's like 10% of the whole population are mammos. So whenever anyone is born, the existing mammos do a divination and watch the birth and decide in that moment whether that, that newborn is going to become a fellow mammo. Um, and if they are going to be a mammo, then it could be for the trees, it could be for the rivers, it could be for the clouds, it could be for whatever. But some are for Mother Nature herself, and they're the ones who then go to the to the dark rooms, the caves, where they spend this time in sort of sensory deprivation, where they're then invited to see nature without your eyes and hear the voice of nature from within the space. Yeah, it's just to avoid the armor and the preconception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they literally have this and then they come out and become um, alongside the other mammals, these people who are basically trying to get rid when they make group decisions they use these amazing divination bowls with, and watch the bubbles and they make the decisions on what they think is not coming from them but coming from the voice of nature itself and that's how they're able to decide what crops to grow or how to do this or how to do that and so super interesting um and, uh, and, and, and it, wor it works. Well, I mean, unlike the Aztecs and the Incas who uh, had problems with leadership or problems yeah. with soil uh, deprivation, uh, yeah, all depletion, of that, yeah. these guys are still tilling the same soils that they have done for 500 years. They, they, you know, and, the, and, the, and the populace follows them because they, it works for them, and so it seems to be working for everyone. So it's super interesting. And, uh, and this whole idea around divination and connection and what is this voice that they're hearing and all these things, clearly I was interested in that, having been woken up from these other indigenous experiences. I was like, wow, what is this? And so um, I went out there with Alan to, to see if we could make another film. And that was, there's serendipities in every aspect of all of this. It's like they, were, they had already sent a message to Alan that they wanted to the same day that we did. For, you know, so all these things. And there's like, there's always serendipity when you end up talking about the Kogi, it's very strange. They, they, they believe, a big part of their belief in, is in this realm called Aluna, which is like a conscious realm, a realm of consciousness. And they're the master meditators, um, they all walk around with these little pots called Poporo pots, which are full of uh, calcious um, shells that have been burnt and crushed. And they use that for activating the coca leaves that they chew. And they're always using these meditative practices to basically try and imagine in their mind something that then only then once they've imagined it in the world of a lunar can it actually manifest then in this world so lots of commonalities with you know new age thinking and a whole bunch of stuff which is yeah, why these manifestation practices so they're, they're a very popular group of people yeah. but it's quite hard to get in to meet them in you can meet them around the edge but anyway so I that's setting the scene for this moment for me. So I go and I meet these people. I have the most crazy dreams and it's a really powerful thing. And they say to me, Alan, when we, as they say to Alan, when we made your film, we told you um, that we, they call themselves the elder brother, we're telling you, the younger, bro younger brother being like everyone else on the planet. It's yeah. like you're destroying the planet. You're, you know, we know because Mother Nature is herself is telling us that you're destroying the oceans, you're destroying the forests. We can feel the glaciers retreating. You, you know, you've got to wake yeah. up. Because in Santa Marta, they have 
from the snow in the for in the in the mountain to the sea. Yeah. So they have the full spectrum of all the ecosystem. So they have a direct, uh, in, you know, vision of the of the impact. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that was the film that Alan made in 1980, I think it was, and it was uh, telling us, younger brother, and this is way before the like the environmental movement had really kicked in and climate change and stuff. It's like you, younger brother, you're destroying the place. Anyway, so we go back 20 years later. Um, when I'm with him, and he goes like, okay, this time we, we told you what we know, now we're going to show you how we know it. And so me, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be that guy that gets to unlock the secrets of these magical beings who do this training. In the, it's like, what, 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 is, what, what is that? That's extraordinary. So you can imagine how I felt at the prospect of that being a possibility for me. Um, some of which was egoic, and other, some of it which is also to be of service to this extraordinary, important message that I believed in because I'd you know, seen climate change and all these things. So I was very in alignment with the message, but I was also super curious about how it is that they do know these things. It's like, is, is, are they just rational ecologists who study things really well, or are they actually connect, connected. connecting to some voice that we have no clue about because we don't go through that sort of training? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm open to it. Anyway... So I say to them, as I'm leaving, this guy, Mama Ramon, Ramon um, okay, how can I best prepare? And he goes, easy, just give up sex, drugs, alcohol, drugs, all these things, you know. For how long? <laughs> and like, you know, we were going to come back in like, we were going to come back and do the filming in like, I don't know, six weeks. But I'm like, what, six weeks and no sex? This is, I live in Ibiza, I'm, I, this is my life. And, and, and I'm like, no. And he goes, okay, we don't need to. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, I will, will, of course I will, of course I will, I want to do that. Um, and so we'll see how it flows. Anyway, as I'm leaving, someone says to me, Bruce, you know that, you know that if you don't do this, it's, you'll get a blockage in your ability to come back and make this film. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, because these are the master manifestors, they create, they're connecting with the lunar, and if you've now got a direct line with them, then... This is how it works. And I'm like, listen, I don't know if I believe that. It's like, yeah, I, these guys are amazing, but that they can affect the sort of like the fabric of the universe, the other side of the world, whether or not things, I mean, that's, that was beyond where I was at, that, at that time. Yeah, my upbringing, I was very open and to various things, but to that level of mental ability to adapt the fabric was, was beyond where I was. So anyway, I come back to the UK and... Uh, and I'm, I, I just started going out with someone, and uh, we'd only just started. And in my head, when I'd said, yes, I'd give up sex, drugs, and alcohol, I was like, okay, I'll do it after just like a day with, with this person, and, and then we'll call it quits. So we, so we spent a night together, and then literally, as soon as it finished, I remember the phone lighting up, and it's like there's a text from the BBC producer saying, oh, there's a problem, I'm having difficulties with Alan, I'm not sure if this film's going to work out or not. And I'm like... Okay, that, that's, that's, I was so desperate to make this film that that was a real blow to me. It's like, wow, I, I could be the guy that makes this extraordinary film and now there's this thing. I mean, that's clearly just a coincidence, but still, that's, like, that's, a, that's a scary coincidence because that was literally right after I transcended, or not transcended, transgressed this first sort of vow, if you will. Anyway, so I take myself off to, to India and go to a meditation retreat and I go and drink ayahuasca in the Himalayas and I get, sort of get myself away from Ibiza um, and start on this journey in preparation. 
And I end up seeing th this girlfriend again in Delhi, and we have another night. And I, we, you know, I don't actually directly transgress it, but I pretty much do. And I literally, again, the moment that we say goodbye, my phone lights up, and it's like, oh, Bruce, sorry, mate, there's, um, there's too many problems. I'm, I'm we're calling it off. Well, that's incredible. And so in that moment, you're asking me about my like the moments of my awakening. In that moment, I'm like, oh my god, okay, Bruce. You're the person who is getting all this acclaim from all these people around the world, like the tribe guy. Yeah, you've made all this series tribe. You've won BAFTAs. You're, yeah, everyone thinks of you as this guy. And it was true that I, when I went to these places, I lived in their families and I did their rituals and I listened to them and I was respectful and I was present for everything. But there was always a bit of the back of my head was like, yeah, I, you know, we kind of know better. There was always that bit, even when if I was with the shaman and having the thing, I always maintained a little bit of my scientific material mindset, which was like not willing to fully go in to, this to them, whatever, whatever it was that they were inviting me. So I was not one of the tribe at all. I was like a visitor. And I was a visitor who got stuck into loads of stuff, but the important stuff, which is like how they see the world, I'd always stayed on my side of the fence. And there it was again. I'm given this opportunity. I'm like with a coggy. It's like, oh, my God. Like, here's these two what I would normally think of as coincidences. But, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this isn't coincidence. Maybe this is exactly what I was told would happen, which is this. And so in that moment, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a fraud in a sense. Um, why don't I... I need to let go. I need to let go into the space and put on the hat of their belief system. Even I can always take it off again and put my old one back on, but I need to actually explore the possibility that what they're saying is real. And of course, as you can imagine, my whole life changed in that moment. And it, everything shifted literally from that second. Everything was then full of, uh, full of meaning, meaning in every... Every encounter, every butterfly that landed had a message. Every person I brushed up against had a had a, 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 a resonance and a, and a journey and a, and a some even the even the difficult stuff was like met with such joy and gratitude because it was an opportunity of a of a of another lesson because it was just like I was on a conveyor belt with gifts just landing in my lap from the universe at every stage and so. There you go. That's a, amazing. That's one. Yeah. Am amazing. Amazing. So, 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 it, let's say that you know the final, the final straw that breaks the camel's back of scientific materialism was the second message indirectly from the Kogi in Delhi. Which year are we now? In, the, in roughly. In, um, twenty not two thousand and nine. Two thousand nine. So, so then you decided to do. A documentary to try to capture all this. Yeah. And that's when we met, yeah. and um, you know I really would like to talk about building community. But you know, Mango TV is a documentary platform after all. Let's take five minutes to share your experience with Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Brutally honest, joy and frustration. You know, now there's been some time. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough resources for distribution. And I will send this podcast to Audrey Marcus because I want here to I want him to hear from you your description of Iboga, of your Iboga experience, and you know I want him to invite you to his podcast. Was a much bigger reach, so that we can maybe give 
Tawai, a little bit more of visibility because it's a beautiful documentary, which is on Mango TV. But anyhow, let's take five minutes talking about your experience making Tawai the voice of the forest. <laughs> what do you want to know, my friend? What do you want to know? I want to know, you know, like people that are listening to us are people that mostly come from Mango TV, where there is 20, 30 documentary. We keep on licensing documentary. I still, a documentary is a great form of information and education. You know, I always say that, you know, um, uh, Marina Bravo, she's a great performance artist, right? She had this show at the, at the MoMA. The artist is present, was called, and it was beautiful. She was sitting there. She would have people sitting in front of her, and she would stare at people for several minutes. It was incredible. I felt, you know, in, an incredible connection with this woman, with her work. And then I watched a documentary on her, and the documentary went under my skin much deeper than the art. So it's not that for everybody. You know, some people don't like to maybe watch... Um, image for so long, but I think that this is a precious tool to really touch people to the core. That's why I keep on licensing them and making them and 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 and, and, and I'm in love with them. So you had the, the opportunity to raise money in collaboration with a friend who was an artist, um, promised some painting to, to, to the investor. So you, had, you were in a privileged position to raise funds. And then what was your, if you look back, the documentary lasted probably to shoot one year and then to cut another two years. That was three years of your life, right? No, no, no. It was like we filmed for three years. We edited for, t I mean, the, it was about 10 years of my life. Oh, my God. In the end, yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, thank you. I, I, I was so driven because I had learned so much from the indigenous peoples, the, the great privilege, and I felt that I hadn't had an opportunity to express that in the BBC films. It's like the, the BBC films were wonderful, and I'm very proud. I mean, I, I hate that word, but in a sense I am. You know, it's like I was really happy with everything that came out, so happy with the, 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 um, the producers and, and, and the whole team that was part of that. But, like, but there was definitely layers that I was learning that weren't coming out, and I felt a sense of responsibility to the audience and also to the tribal people to, to express this more. Um, and a big part of that was to some of the spiritual stuff that I was learning the, the, and the sort of philosophical stuff. That was a very big part of what I wanted to share. And there was also something that was really um, very profound for me, and that was that I had lived with indigenous peoples all over the world. I was like the tribe guy. I thought I'd seen it all. I'd seen every type of society imaginable in every f remote corner of this planet that people can't even get into, let alone go to so many. Um, and so I, I was carrying this, uh, these insights. And one thing, if you'll, if you'll allow me, that was like really powerful for me that yeah, for all of the wisdom that I had learned from from my time with tribal people, uh, which was you know, all the stuff that we know, like the, the you know the the importance of community, the the connection to nature, the healing modalities, the, the important how kids flourish when there's you know in communal settings, and all these sorts of things, the, the deep stuff that we hear being talked about the whole time. At the end of the day, I also, I mean, I lost my I lost my romance living with tribal people, there's all sorts of difficult stuff. It's lots of misogyny, there's lots of like warfare, and like, they're not all respecting nature massively. It's like, you know, they're, they're human societies. And, 
and also they're dealing with a lot of the problems that we deal with around stress and anxiety, around status and power and all that stuff too. So like there they are. They're not they're not trashing the world the same degree as we are, but they're just on the same conveyor belt, just much further back. So I kind of came to a place where it's like, oh, actually, our species is a bit messed up. You know, it's like we're maybe we're destined to being where we are because it's like it's because we're we're complex beings and we're getting caught up in these power structures and all the rest of it. So that was my kind of like takeaway at the end of my time with with making the tribe series until I made the last episode. And then I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this is completely different. It's like every other person I've ever met in my life, every other society, whether it's indigenous or whether it's a nation state, I could put on one side. And then this group was like the same, the same hardware, but completely different operating system. The These Panan. guys, the Panan. And so this was the last group I met. And ultimately, they were a group of people who weren't dealing with they had methods and tools within their society to deal with power and hierarchy. So there was no shaman, no leaders, and yet here they were living in this way. And then I went off to meet another group in the making of Tawai. It didn't make it into the film, sadly, called the Benjeli, who also were like this. And that was like, to me, it's like, God, no one knows about this. Our real deep history prior to the Neolithic Revolution is that we were actually really very harmonious. And we did actually have tools and methods to maintain balance and harmony, which is at the heart of all of the problems that we're seeing now, I see now, actually can come from that moment of shift of getting into the game of power and hierarchy. So I wanted to merge these two things. I wanted to go and meet the Panan who were telling us about sharing and about equality and about leadership and all that sort of stuff. And then also mix that with a journey that was talking about spirit and connection and consciousness because they were the two big things that I'd learned. And so that's... The, the Penan, they were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So they had no sort of, like, they hadn't been affected by the impacts of... Of settling. Of settling and agriculture. So, like, the Neolithic Revolution and the domestication of plants and animals. And, it, and, and you know, I'd already lived with other hunter-gatherers, but I hadn't lived with no truly nomadic hunter-gatherers who were still flowing with nature in the forest. And... And I knew they were out there, and I'd heard that they were egalitarian, but the, the reality of meeting them is very different to just reading about this on the page. I, the first moment I met them, I'm like, oh, my God, you are completely different. And I couldn't even put my finger on what it was because it was like some part of me that I normally bring to every experience of meeting someone, which is like, where am I? Where do I sit? Where, where, what, where, where's the status play here? Which was invisible to me, but it was like... I, I didn't know that that was what I was doing, but I realized that that's what I always did whenever I went anywhere. And then when I come to this group, it just, the, 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 that game wasn't being played. And so there was this whole thing that was like, what's happening here? I can't figure it out. And it's only much later when I started talking to anthropologists like Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, who studied these groups, and they're like, yeah, 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 this is, this is our, this is our, main way of being that's that's been here for like 95% of our time on the planet and like uh, and so everywhere that you can go now in Africa and Southeast Asia it kind of didn't didn't last that much out of the tropics but like there's there's a dozen small groups now that you can go and meet in Africa and Southeast Asia who all have these same traits which is they're egalitarian and they they don't have got caught up in the game of hierarchy and power in the same way that everyone else has and and they're all slightly different they're not all the same but they carry similar qualities around no coercion and no ownership and all this sort of stuff and it's not just small groups but you go to the Congo now and it's like 200,000 people all existing in this paradigm 
um, in this sort of flowing, ebbing way of being that just is a decentralized, autonomous way of being that is like our true ancestry. And I'm like, oh my God, no one knows this. But this Congo tribe, the 200,000 people, they are nomadic. Yeah. Because that, I think, helps, of course, right? Of course, of course. Not building up on... So what's, so what's been really interesting for me, having made Tawai... Sorry, Bruce. Yes. Because the second tribe you mentioned that didn't make into the movie, I'm not familiar. Um, what was the second? They're called tribe? the uh, Benjeli. The Benjeli. Yeah. And what was their particularity? So they're basically, when I went to visit the Penan, Jerome and Ingrid, who who feature in the film Tawai, telling me about these sort of uh, pre-Neolithic egalitarian tribes. Um, they describe all these tools that are the tools that the community use in order to maintain balance. It's not like a natural state. It needs a lot of, lot of work in all these different ways. And so, and so he was describing that. But when I was with the Panan, I didn't see those, those, those methodologies and those tools and tricks and techniques in use. It was like they just were like existing in this mm -hmm. very placid space. And so he said, okay, let me take you to a group that I know who live in the Congo and you'll see this much more played out. Mm. And so that's mm. what happened. And actually, if you go to the Twai website, it's an outtake you can see uh, under this area called Next. And um, we can talk about that later. But you can see the little clip that I made. It's just 10, 10 minutes of, of what I'm about to describe to you. And so when you go there, you find, oh, this is how they do it. And I think I've spent the last 10 years trying to unpick all of those techniques and think, okay, what of those techniques is transferable to today? What is it that we could learn? Because obviously you could say, oh, well, it's a time gone by. We're not hunter-gatherers anymore. Oh, we, they used to live in the tropics. And oh, we're not nomadic. Yeah, and we're not nomadic and all these things. So it's like that's the easy way of just going, it's impossible. It's in the past. You can't, there's nothing you can do about it. But that, I wasn't happy to just sit there and go, oh, well, it's a time gone by. It's like, no, 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 no. What is it about how they do this? Is there anything that's transferable? And that's basically been my last 10 years. Um, and I didn't get a chance to put that into the film because I hadn't actually figured it all out at that stage. The film ended up being much more about spirit and connection and consciousness. And we talk a little bit about sharing and, and, and power, but not really. And so having made Tawai, that's been what I've been about since then. But you asked me, my motivation was that there, there was this group. And, you know, I was a tribe guy and I didn't know that egalitarian was our true ancestry. I just didn't realize it, egalitarianism. And so I wanted to, ha I wanted to touch on that. And then also, but I think because I was very, I was living in Ibiza and I was on a very deep spiritual journey here that that played itself out in Tawai as well. So not having enough space and being a first-time director and making every mistake, I mean, literally every mistake in the book, just filming way too much and going everywhere and spending too much money on trying to squeeze in all these things, I realized only when I came to the edit, there's just no way I can do that. And like, you know, I make it to a very nuanced audience who, who already knows this stuff. If I want to actually make an impact, I need to get rid of so much of this stuff. We got rid of the whole ayahuasca section, which was a trip to Colombo. We got rid of the whole of the, the, um, of the Benjeli in the Congo. They're both scenes you can see on the website, but they didn't make it into the film because I just didn't have enough time. It would have been a five-hour epic otherwise. Yes. Okay, perfect. So now we're going to the um, little bit the heart after one hour premise of, <laughs> of, 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 I think, what is very important that you're doing now, and you mentioned a little bit, you, you know, you're trying to integrate the learning from these tribes that live peacefully without the power structure, 
without uh, um, this extracting mentality of of using nature and you know without this competition that 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 create you know anxiety and and disease you can say i know this is controversial but um so you know we live in ibiza where i have two examples of of community you know one is my son's school it's 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 called the learning project it's a self-directed democratic school and so it's 100 kids from 5 to 16 and basically the philosophy of this school is that first forget about education first you need to develop trust and joy you need these kids to trust each other to you know care for each other to help each other and to play together and 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 then there are also rules that they vote and then there is a committee of peace and justice that basically the kids control and run which uh, decide the punishment for people that break the rules that they have created and I see that. I've spent a day there the other day, and you see these kids as at five years old thinking about, okay, but I voted these rules, and then I broke these rules, and all this critical thinking with the prism of the group. But that's his hundred kids. Now, the problem we have in millions of people's society and, and, and traditional school when kids come home in this, like, you know, uh, segregated and, you know, and, and this neighborhood where we are building fences and alarm and dogs and, you know, we have been separating each other. So we can discuss the state of the world and we can say that it's getting better, but there's definitely improvement to me in terms of how do we live together in society? How do we create a state of trust and harmony and um, you know, Mangusta TV, Mangusta Production is developing a, a series of of, um, of, 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 of of documentary on on post capitalistic society. We, we find we, we call them. We've been shooting in in Tamera already. We want to go to Damanhur and to Oroville and to Pachamama and and so the experience from Tamera is that this group of people they basically have this idea that. Like my son's school is this idea of like you know building trust to mirror each other, but you know out of love. So so they meet like three times a week. They have this big meeting where they call each other on what is perceived a non-harmonious behavior or non-collaborative behavior. And as you know, sometimes, you know, you need other people to tell you because they see things, you know, like there was a case where in the regenerative agriculture department, there was a guy who wanted to do a thing but was really motivated by a girl. And, and the other people see that. So people, they put him in the spot, but with love because they've been living together. The kids have been grown together. It's not like putting a friend in the spot at a party where he's an acquaintance. Those people are close to each other. So what I would like to ask you is like, and, and I know that you're still ex exploring and there is no certainty, but what are you trying to do in terms of building this community in Wales? What, is, what has been your journey? And it's still ongoing, but... It's very much ongoing, yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, just beautiful what you just described. And it's so nice because I haven't seen you in a while. And like this, this, these new insights that, that you're receiving is very in alignment with where I'm at, Giancarlo. And like, it's really beautiful because like when I first heard about democratic schools years ago, I was like, that's it. You know, it's like here, here we're beginning to see some of the things that I've learned on my journeys 
taking shape. And I think that, that there is loads, loads of things that are happening now around the world that are wake that are awakening moments to this. Like you know, on the online space, the DAOs and um, uh, all that sort of stuff, and Web three is similar. You know, it's under- yeah, understanding trust and decentralization is just two of the many tools that are needed. You know, you need them all, but they're, but that we're waking up to some of this stuff. And so I, what I realized having made Tawai is that some of the things that were really vital to me, even though people would watch the film and I spent millions and, and like 10 years of my life, it's still going over people's heads. And I'm like, why is it that some of these deeper messages are not landing? And then it kind of dawned on me that like, okay, I'm the lucky guy that's actually experienced this. For me, it was real because I've touched it. Experiential, yeah. I, I've touched it. And it's like, oh, I can talk until I'm blue in the face, but I can I see people just start glazing over when I start talking about this stuff. You know, and like, and when you really get into truly what egalitarian is, egalitarianism is, it's so far away from our lived reality that, you know, no philosopher or religious leader in history has even touched on it. You know, you think every philosopher that's ever had a go at like how humans should best live together, whether it's Plato, Aristotle, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, who, whoever it is, all, none of them came up with this because it's so far away. And yet there it is, not only alive today in the forest and I've been there, but also possibly our shared ancestry as a whole species for so long, which is why we're so finely tuned to value and status and all these things. We know it in our bodies. And so I'm like, wow, I've touched this. Like a seed has been planted in my heart. And I'm like, okay, the only way that I'm actually going to be able to share this truly is by living it myself. And that's proved hard because it's like putting the genie back into the bottle. It's like the whole trip we're on at the moment around... Um, freedom and like uh, and like individualism and all this stuff needs to be looked at through a different lens when you're now thinking collectively you know and obviously collective ideas have been out there for a, for a while you know that's what like Marx and all these guys are talking about but they still caught, got caught up in very centralized ways of figuring that out and this is like fully decentralized fully autonomous um, individuals within a within a collective, and so that's what I have been trying to to figure out whether or not I I with a group of people can recreate this, and um, and it's proving hard because actually getting the genie back in for all of us is tough. Um, so, but that was that's the motivation was to like create something that replicated this so that others could touch it. It could become its own virus that would spread. It's like oh yeah, okay, you're doing it like that. Uh, and then others could do the same, and it being it's a slow way of doing things, but so level with us, like you know the practicality and the challenge. And so you bought a piece of land in Wales. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Bruce. I, you know, I, I let's do I, it, mate. Let's do it. No, I'm, I'm living. I, I, I am. I'm here to answer the question. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, we have a very loving community, very understanding. You know, you have been creating so much. Um, important stuff for this discussion. So, um, so your your idea was to live in a, what's the word when you live out of nature but without agriculture? No, no, no. Uh, what I've been interested in is the tools. And so it doesn't mean that you have to go and be a hunter-gatherer again. It doesn't mean you have to be a nomad. What's that word anyway? Sort of uh, pre pre. 
agrarian what what you when 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 uh, oh, like instant return instant no the you know when 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 you leave from nature yes but you don't plant you know you leave from the wild nature yeah so f- like a foraging 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 okay yes yeah, so I, I remember uh, the last thing i remember about you is like bruce perry he's starting a foraging community in wales where he's gonna go and 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 Drive half an hour with the bicycle to to fish, yeah. and he's gonna leave from the fruit. That, 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 um, there's a part of me that actually really wanted to do that, and yes. the original group of people that I was going to live with yes. all have experience, really that. beautiful skills in that space. Yeah. Um, as it happened, that didn't turn out with that group because I made a power move, and like th- mm. these people that I'm with are very. Th- advanced and they've all been living in community for a while like your friends in Tamara they've all they all know community mm-hmm. life and and ultimately I went and bought a place without talking to the group first thinking they would love it but that in its own right was a power move and so they ended up not joining um and so that left me on my own. But they didn't like the location. I think or? there was a bit of that, but it's also because it was suddenly mine. It was yours. And even though I was going to let go of it, it, the energy was okay. There's a founder energy there, and like mm-hmm. you know, it, and it's these things are very subtle. Mm-hmm. They're very subtle. But when you're living in community, so many of the people that I'm I'm now talking to, who are an extraordinary group, who all lived with each other. We've been in process for about three years now. Me and about fifteen people who've all lived together, who who have lived in this great place in a in a town not far from where I live, but they're, they're interested in what I'm... So you've been living with these people for... F- no, I'm living in my place, yeah. and then just up the road, there's another. There's a number of communities very All close around, to where yes. I am. And most of those communities have... Um, uh, are working to various degrees. Some of them are cooperatives, some of them have different structures... It just so happens that this particular place where I made a lot of deep friends were living in a place that was owned by someone else who carried quite a strong... Um, Control. Like, well, yeah, like, let's just call it like... Uh, Influence. Uh, no, he like a uh, landlord energy, like, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah, so, and, and that... Uh, what I was offering was like, okay, we can come here and I'll literally let go of ownership and we're going to now look at power in all of its different forms so that even I can get kicked out if I... You know, if we go through these procedures and I'm, you know, I'm displaying power in a way that's disharmonious, all this. So, like, and I wrote out this whole manifesto that was looking at all these things, decision making, conflict resolution, power structures, all that. But, um, but the dream was and is to, to also look at power in all its forms, which is like money and, and then earnings and time on the land and all this sort of stuff. And that is further than where most people are at. And so um, we're, we're still in a place of negotiating whether or not I'm going com- to, where the compromises are between the group and me as to what this vision is. But so who lives in your land now? So it's me and about two others, but, mm-hmm. it, but it's not an intentional community. We're just, they're just staying with me at the moment. And then so, they have their work outside? At the moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the... So yes, yeah, so basically that thing that I went to do hasn't happened yet, and yeah. I'm not because sh- because because of the cultural surrounding, because we're not in Gabon I or in. I think a- no, I think what the main reason was was because I'm I'm strong on a vision, and I think that I could probably find people who would be in alignment with if I put the vision out in a book or something or a film, and I go, who wants to come? I could probably fill that place with people who are in alignment with that same vision, but 
that would also put me then at the center of it because I'd be the common denominator. So I thought, rightly or wrongly, the best way for me to do this is actually to not... It was, was ultimately what I did was, was I said, okay, I'll find a group of people who already know each other and maybe try and persuade them To, to come in alignment with this vision. And by, and by their model. And, 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 so, yeah, to co-create that yeah. together. But what that's meant is actually we've all got quite different ideas. And because yeah. it's only me that's really carrying this very strong egalitarian thing and other people have got their own ideas of what things could be, that that has meant that actually we're not necessarily coalescing around one vision, or at least, let's say, the vision of the hunter-gatherers of the egalitarianism. There's other things, there's a, like Eastern philosophies thrown in and there's all these other people yeah. bringing their own stuff, which is of course beautiful, but it's, I don't know where I'm at with that. And so... But why why are you so enamored with this idea of the egalitarian? Like Tamera, for example, they have their own leaders, yeah. but they're not, you know, it's not a dictatorship. You know, they work harder They they and they create value. Because I think that, yeah, I think that there's definitely been many occasions where either gurus or benign dictators have um, held space in a really altruistic way and a, and a beautiful way. And that, there's plenty of examples of that. But the, the longevity of that, often is interesting. You often find there's a power vacuum when those people disappear. It's very often that the second generation, especially relatives of or bloodlines of uh, or maybe owners of and all these things, that there's there's complexion there, com complexity there. And, and the, what I saw with the egalitarian space is that actually they don't have to go through that same. It's like when you really disseminate out What the, what the egalitarian tribes really showed me was that any time that power coalesces in one place or gets stuck or, or fixed, it causes problems. And so for them, it's all about keeping it moving, keeping it moving. And, the, and, the, and the, one of the biggest uh, aspects of that is, is um, which would, you know, it's too big a story to get into now, but it's like it's, a lot of that is around women actually, women coming together as a collective and, and holding the men to account and all that, which is a complex thing to talk about today. Yes. But, um, but that was one of the things that I noticed. I mean, there's so many layers. <laughs> no, but this is, this is amazing. So, you know, we're like an hour and ten, and um, I want to be respectful of your time and the listener time to stay around one hour. I think we cover a lot, and this is a great introductory conversation to talk more in the next episode about you know how can um, what you know you know building building community in the modern era integrating you know the divine feminine you were mentioning and 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 understanding to what extent power should exist and should be localized and non-delocalized and the education part of it and the, the the private property part of it and the 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 creativity part of it and and yeah and then you just give me a new enthusiasm to continue the developing the post-capitalistic societies series okay great so uh, Bruce what um, if people want to know more about you they can watch the tribes on BBC They can watch Tawai on Mango TV. What else would you recommend uh, for people, not just maybe your material, but what are the, maybe the books or the movie that really inspire you to go on this journey? Okay, yeah, so books that I think if people want to, like I think that Chris Ryan, who wrote, you'll know because he wrote that book, Sex, Sex at, at Dawn, Dawn which yeah. 
which um, which is great. But like uh, the the book that I really rated was uh, Civilized to Death. Mm. He talks Isn't about one? Yep. he talks about egalitarianism. Mm. Um, interestingly, most of the early egalitarian societies are monogamous. He didn't like that so much. <laughs> but that's another, that's another that's, com- the next that's another conversation <laughs> yeah. we can have, my friend. I know that's a big one. Um, but the uh, but that's a that's a great book. That's a great book. Nice. Uh, there's two others that have come out that are interesting in this space too. There's um, Brett and uh, Heather we- Weinstein's book, um, The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which is super controversial, but uh, but there's stuff in it. They don't talk about egalitarianism, but they do talk about other stuff. And there's another book. It's like a trilogy in a way of books that have come out in the last couple of years by David Graeber, who's well-known uh, anarchist, um, uh, called The Dawn of Everything, I think it is. And like you know, uh, each of these books, there's things that I, I'm not fully in alignment with, but, but that's great. But there's definitely wisdom in all of them. He talks, he talks about um, a number of things, including touching on it. He kind of diffuses egalitarianism a bit. Um, but to much more than I would, but at the same time describes how it probably continued on into civilization. So there's there's definitely wonderful stuff in all of those three. Um, and my website, well, I think Earth is probably the best place to go. And there's some great uh, interviews under the science section. And then under the next section, you can see the, uh, the, the ayahuasca film and also the Ben Jelly film. Amazing. This is a big topic. You know, how do we live... Um, together more harmoniously, you know, I don't want to be one of these pessimistic about, you know, there's been great progress in our planet, but, you know, if just looking at the health situation, you know, the increasing in heart disease and, and, and chronic disease and autoimmune disease um, has been like incredibly exponential since the 30s and the 40s, you know, like, Farming for money has brought us the industrial agriculture with as no nutrients, educating for money, entertaining for money. I mean, we, you know, with all the respect I have for the, you know, what capitalism has brought, I think we can do better. You know, like Eisenstein says, you know, we know there is a better world that our heart is possible. No, is possible. So thank you guys. Thank you, Bruce. And we'll have you soon next time. Let's not leave another two years. Let's not leave it. Thank you. Love you, man. Coca sunarai sunarai en ti 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 Coca sunarai sunarai en ti